Welcome to the seventh episode of Steel Watching, which is a podcast for Remington Steel fans. My name is Sarah. I'm one of the hosts. And I'm Eric. I'm your other host. And we're going to be talking about the episode Etched in Steel today, which is an episode that I particularly really like. It first aired on November 19th, 1982, and was written by Glenn Corden, sorry, Glenn Corden Karen, Gordon Karen, my God, Glenn Gordon (laughs) Karen, I don't like his name, and directed by Stan Lathan. And so for this episode, I looked at the TV guide listing from, you know, the book that we have, Judas book. And I found it really amusing, so I'm using this one. Laura thinks a best-selling sexy book author killed her own husband until she discovered it was the woman's insipid spouse who wrote the books. I really like insipid spouse being put into this TV guide listing. They're really good with their adjectives, I've noticed. So kudos, TV (laughs) guide from 1982. (laughs) Can you imagine having a degree in English literature and then being hired by TV guide to write their episode synopsis? (laughs) And they're just like, we have a word count, people. Cut this down. You don't need this many adjectives. But, you know, he is kind of insipid. So Uh, I think it works. (laughs) The other thing I noticed when I was looking at the production synopsis for this episode, an interesting fact that I read was that the name of the author was originally Constance Knight and then changed when the episode aired to Charlotte Knight, Mm -hmm. which I think kind of fits more of a persona that they were going for. So I just wanted to kind of put in a little bit at the beginning here to start off. The author Charlotte Knight is clearly inspired by real life author Daniel Steele. So I did a quick Wikipedia deep dive and found some interesting facts about Daniel Steele. I don't know if if you want to oblige me here, but. uh, (laughs) Tell me. So here's the thing. I didn't know anything. I I knew that I saw her books on my mother's bookshelf when I was younger. That was it. I freely admit I have never read anything by her. Does not appeal. Not my type of thing. But I do think when I started to read She was born August 14th. This is from Wikipedia, so nothing really uh, super in-depth. But she was born August 14th, 1947, and she is the fourth best-selling fiction author of all time. So she's sold over 800 million copies and written over 190 books. And because this episode deals with ghostwriting, I remembered reading somewhere that a lot of really big authors, when they get big enough, they hire ghostwriters and they stop writing their own stuff. And I, for whatever reason in my head, figured, okay, well, surely she's ghostwriting or has a ghostwriter now because she has a book out, two books out, three books out. There's there's always books on the shelf by her. I Googled it. She has never had a ghostwriter. And not only has she never had a ghostwriter, but she has written 190 books, including over 140 novels. She comes out with like two to five books a year, something crazy like that. She also, and this is also of note to the episode, she has written all of her novels on Olympia SG-1 standard typewriters since the episode kind of comes undone via the realization of a typewriter. Mm -hmm. She still writes on a typewriter, which she bought secondhand for $20. And she's actually been on the Guinness Book of World Records or in the Guinness Book of World Records, for having a book on the New York Times bestseller list for the most consecutive weeks of any author, 381 consecutive weeks at that time. So 
just a couple of really interesting things I did not know. And the other interesting thing that I didn't know was that she's been awarded a ton of awards for mental health and the work that she's apparently done in mental health, including a Distinguished Service Award from the American Psychiatric Association, Service to Youth, Outstanding Achievement for Adolescents, Larkin Street Youth Association, and a bunch of other things, California Hall of Fame, and all due to the fact that her son, unfortunately, committed suicide. So she created a fund and she basically funneled all kinds of mental health resources to gain more recognition for children's mental health. So just random stuff on her because the episode features so heavily on the type of books that she was known for writing and and is somewhat not too complimentary about them (laughs) in a way. I just thought it was kind of interesting to kind of put that in there. So that is completely non-Steel related, but I thought it, well, it was kind of Steel related, Danielle Steel, Remington Steel. (laughs) But if, you know, that's kind of all I had. (laughs) If you want to get into the episode. (laughs) Uh, It's more than I ever knew. Okay. More than I, I knew either. I do have a question about the title of the episode. Maybe I'm just being dense, but what does the title Etched in Steel have to do with the plot? I The only thing I, I can think know. of is, is printing and the idea that printing plates are etched plates, but that doesn't, I mean, that's, that's kind of a stretch. It's a big stretch, yeah. The killer is revealed for having used a typewriter, but that's not really etching. It's mm-hmm. typing. No, it's not. And the Mitch Knight used recordings. Like he dictated. So yes. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I guess etched implies writing, but why not say written in steel? Yeah, exactly. You could use. Yeah. Or steel in print. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I like a good yours one. better, but yeah. Yeah. I just, that I just couldn't make the worked. connection. Yeah. No, I agree. And I've honestly never thought about it until you mentioned it. So, yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So, so, so we have that. <laughs> what questions have you got for me? Um, well, the first, the opening scene, we've got this shot of a disheveled man, which we find out later, of course, is Mitch Knight reading this manuscript, gets very angry about the end, starts ranting and raving up at the bedroom and then it pans in to this shot of a woman charlotte knight huge hair makeup to the nine she's in this crazy satin i don't even know what you negligee nighty nightgown whatever makeup full makeup full face nighty (laughs) she's smoking the bed sheets are satin this is clearly a lifestyle that they're trying to portray like right from the get-go something the 80s audience would understand and i think this is probably the most overt reference to the kind of daniel still oeuvre of novels not just her specifically but these sort of lifestyle novels that were very appealing do you think modern she's smoking in bed for one i don't see an ashtray anywhere near her um, do you think modern audiences are going to get this sort of lifestyle reference the same way, or is this one going to go straight over people's heads? I think most people are capable of understanding it. It's not necessarily something that would jump to mind and be as readily identifiable and associated with 
that whole genre of life now as it would have been back then. I mean, because it's it's not the kind of thing that we see on TV. Yeah. There was that whole atmosphere back then of this. And so it was a fairly common thing to have represented in the media, not so much anymore. So I, I think people can recognize it. I think people can understand yeah. the reference, but the understanding of it is a little bit more tenuous than it would have been back then. And it's also... We would look at this and see maybe something that is specific to an era. Back then, this was considered sexy. All of this, the satin sheets, the nighty, the smoking in bed. I look at that and I go, okay, well, you're going to ruin your bed sheets. These fancy schmancy satin bed sheets you have, you are going to drop that cigarette. It is, or you're going to drip your ashes or whatever. Like, plus smoking gives you cancer. Just stop. You know, nothing about that to me implies sexy. But at the time, this was the image that they was being sold as sexy. The big hair, the makeup, the satin sheets, the smoking, everything. So I, I just kind of, I think you're right that they would recognize it, but not necessarily have the same connection back to it because that's not something that we would see now in TV as being sexy. It would be a, it would be a fire <laughs> PSA, yeah. right? You know, it'd be just put your cigarettes out. This is how you lose well, your and, bed. And I think <laughs> your choice of words there, that was how it was being sold. I, I think that's really a, a good mm -hmm. and appropriate choice of words because personally, I never thought of that sort of thing as being sexy or even being desirable no. uh, you know i sure i'd like to have the money i'd like to have the nice apartment you know not necessarily in a high-rise building i i've got this thing about <laughs> being up in the air and you know looking down and yeah, yeah i don't want to be up but, 35 floors you know the That's the whole no being well off yeah i could i could go for that but this whole satin sheets and smoking in bed and and the yeah I was going to say the sexy lingerie, but I, I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but <laughs> just the presentation of it in that manner, yeah, it, it never appealed to me. That was not that was not anything that uh, – and I don't think it was yeah. – I don't think it necessarily appealed to as many people as were convinced it appealed to people. Yeah. I think Hollywood had this this idea of this is, this is what people want and this is what we're going to sell them. And it's, people are out there saying, okay, well, if that's what you're going to give us, then that's what we'll take. That's what we'll watch. But – that's not necessarily what we're what we're looking for, but anyway, that's that's Hollywood. <laughs> it's true. So we switch over to the office. Things are slow uh, apparently as they ramp up to Christmas. The bit with Murphy needing help for his crossword is probably one of my favorite parts of this episode. When he calls in, I need a ten-letter word for lexicon, and then Laura sort of patiently saying. Did you look it up? <laughs> Dictionary is very funny. One thing I did wonder, though, Bernice says she's worried they don't have any clients. She asks, how long does this usually last? Implying that she's never seen this Christmas slump, whereas Laura and Murphy are mm -hmm. kind of used to it. They they seem to have expected it. So I'm Laura claims things are usually slow at Christmas. Is she referencing her time at Havenhurst here, do we think? Is that how she knows things are slow at Christmas or because we get the impression that Bernice started the agency with them, in which case she would know that theoretically. Yeah. Or I yeah. might be overthinking um, it. <laughs> you know, it, it does imply that Bernice has not been with Laura and Murphy in any capacity 
prior to the the beginning of, of that particular calendar year, because if she'd been with them either at Birmingham Steel Investigations or at yeah. Haydenhurst or at the Laura Holt Investigations, which was, you know, in between, she would have been there oh, during yeah. the Christmas yeah. and she would know. So, yeah, you're you're right. That is an interesting question. In which case, that makes me wonder about the job interview, because I can just imagine, you know, we're interviewing for this. First of all, you need to sign this non-disclosure <laughs> agreement that says you are not going to talk about anything that we discuss here in this interview because, you know, we need a secretary. And by the way, we've invented a fake boss that you cannot admit is not real. <laughs> sign here. Well, <laughs> I just think that would be a very... Interesting job interview. Well, it would be if it if it went that way. My vision of it would have been something along the <laughs> lines of, you know, if she hadn't been working with Laura or Murphy or the two of them uh, for any length of time, that would explain her lack of knowledge about that. But she and Laura could have been friends for a much longer period of time. And, you know, True. so Laura said, look, here's the deal. I had this private investigation business that I started and it's just not working out. So I've got this idea. Murphy's on board with it. You know, Murphy, right? Uh, Bernice. Yeah. You've met. So here's the plan. I need a secretary, somebody I can trust who won't spill the beans. Are you interested? That's how I envision it based on what we know right now. And based on your question. I would, I would love to. And based on your saying that I would love to know Bernice's backstory. <laughs> I really wish we'd gotten because uh, we get a bit of Murphy. We know that Laura and Murphy knew each other at Havenhurst and they were friends. I really want to know, where did Bernice come from? And unfortunately, we don't ever get that, which is a shame because she's very, I love I think the, we do get a hint of it in that first episode, though, uh, in the premiere episode, not not the pilot. Because she yeah, says, remember true. me, I'm the party yeah. girl. So <laughs> there is a hint there that they do have some history. Yeah, true. That is true. And and Laura obviously her her lamenting she would give anything for a nice juicy murder, but she doesn't seem terribly worried about the lack of clients. So they must be paying the bills perfectly fine. Her expression when she sees the photo and caption of Steele with the publisher, <laughs> he writes, When I get through with him, he won't be able to read. Where is Dostoevsky? And she storms out. Love it. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes. Well, my, 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 in my notes, what I wrote down is that where she says what I wouldn't give for a nice juicy murder, my subcomment was, does her murdering Remington Steele count? Because that's exactly what I had in mind is that, yeah. <laughs> well, it would be, yeah, because she gets so angry. And then, I, when, again, one thing I, I found odd and I find odd mm -hmm. about this episode is that and it's ironically the thing the plot hinges on is why Mr. Steele would want to write a book on his 10 most famous cases. This feels out of place given how little his involvement in the agency actually is at this point. The cases he's worked on so far have either been by accident or he's been pulled into. It's funny. Laura's response to it is hilarious. You don't have 10 famous cases. You don't have 10 cases. But it feels like something he would do a bit later on because... I struggle to think of what he would get out of publishing a book at this stage beyond the notoriety he already has. Like, what is he actually going to talk about when he actually doesn't have any famous cases? Well, here's here's the thing. I think <laughs> you are approaching it from the standpoint of he had the idea to write the book. And I don't think that's probably what happened. I think Forsyth, 
Sure. Forsyth is, I mean, we find out about him and let's admit it. He's a, a bit of a, a con man in his own way, I suppose. I can see him going to Randy oh, yeah. Steele and saying, hey, you know, I'm looking for some good books. You're a detective. You're famous. This would be perfect. So he he gets something out of it. He gets a good book that he can sell for a lot of money and make a lot of money on, or he he thinks he will. And Steele is going to get the notoriety that he deserves as a world-class, world-famous detective. So <laughs> I, I imagine that Forsyth sold yeah. him on the idea. And Steele, being a bit of a patsy, I guess, in, in some ways, he, he just falls for it. <laughs> I wonder if he also did it a bit to get Laura's attention, like a, a child would do to get their parents' attention, but not knowing how to go about it in a positive way, because he must have known how she was going to react to this. He couldn't have, I don't think there, there's any universe in which he would think, oh yeah, Laura will think this is a great idea that I'll get a book published all about me, you know? Do you really think he even thought about it that far in advance or, or gave it any thought? It was just like somebody came up and they wanted, <laughs> wanted not, him to do something yeah. and it's like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. And then afterwards, then it's like, okay, so now how do I justify this? Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, we get the hilarious switch to him in the smoking gown in his apartment. Is that what it is? The smoking jacket? I think that's what that's supposed to be, yeah. Assume it's this weird, yeah. And then he's narrating his, quote, book to someone. We never see her again. So I assume that she was probably sent over by the publishing agency. And, of course, this is one of my favorite things. So I'm going to take a moment out here to say that I had to read a lot of Charles Dickens in school. And I read Great Expectations and A Tale of Two Cities in high school. And then when I went to university, I had to read Hard Times and Dombey and Son, both for the same course, the 19th century Victorian novel or whatever it was. And I had to read like nine mm-hmm. novels and that was two of them. Dombey and Son alone is 900 pages. So I have a love-hate <laughs> relationship with Charles Dickens. He got paid by the word. And so, of course... He was exceedingly wordy, and Steele is sitting there narrating his, quote, book with the beginning of A Tale of Two Cities, saying it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and then the woman that is doing his, you know, taking down his dictation, she interrupts and says, shouldn't it be it was both the best and worst of times, which cuts out two words, and he says, oh, yeah, absolutely, it's much more economical, and I'm almost certain that was a dig at the fact that, you know, Dickens did not need to use that many (laughs) words in his books. So I just love it. I think it's hilarious. Great little kind of insult there. to. Didn't she recognize the line? It looked like it. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think anybody would because it's clearly one of the more famous literary beginnings of books, I would think. But then, of course, before they get any further, <laughs> Laura yeah. storms in. I haven't had 10 most famous cases. Yeah, that's where she hits him with that. How dare you? And the, the minute she just says, how dare you? He, he, oh, you mean to go. He dismisses this woman, gets her out the door, planning a career in fiction, are you? And his attempt to persuade her, especially his comments on franchising, mulch comes to mind here. I had it written down too. I don't know if you thought of that. As, did you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I figured you would have. So I have two questions for this though. When he goes on his little rant about seeing Remington Steel offices and shopping malls, he says, think of it, Laura, whole families going to the mall, buying sneakers, picking up snow tires, leaving clues. 
why the heck would anybody be buying snow tires in California? First of all, there's my first question. As a Canadian who owns, a, you know, I have to switch my tires every time it gets below, I think, minus seven degrees Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but does anyone in California own snow tires? Why would that get a well, reference? Well, somebody in Northern California might, but certainly not, I wouldn't think, I in the Los Angeles area. <laughs> When's the last time LA had snow? Yeah. So that was just, I thought that was random. A random thing that maybe the writer put in without thinking about it. I don't know. And then the second question, why? So I have a few theories about this, but why is Laura so angry about the book? Is it because it's a book that is celebrating her work and of course putting his name on it? Is it something else? But technically he's, he's, he's right in the sense mm -hmm. that it could bring in more clients. So is it, it, it's, I'm wondering why, sh is it because he's he's getting that recognition extra, but he's already getting it? I don't know. I'm uh, That one I kind of went back and forth on a little bit. Let me preface my response by asking this question. What cases would he write about? Okay. This is so what I he's wonder. Gonna it's, it's, or Laura said, what are you planning a career in fiction? He's going to have to make stuff up. Fiction. He, he's either going to have to make stuff up, or, as you said, take her cases and put his name into them. Yeah. I, I'm thinking she's fearful that it's going to be the first, that he's going to make things up. And, and okay, yeah. Even if, even if they take the cases that actually happened and stick his name in it, there's the possibility that that's going to backfire and it will damage the credibility of the agency. And I think in this one particular case, True. she might actually be if she would were to have said i'm only thinking of the agency murphy i think in this particular case it would have been true this one case never yeah. never ever any other time <laughs> when she said it was it true but in this case i think it would have been yeah, true. any other time it's a bit of a line but yeah, I, I think it's all about the yeah. it, the reputation of the agency i wonder too if she's worried that if they fly too high that they might come under the radar of law enforcement tax of it like we know that she doesn't file a tax return for yes. him we find that out later on so maybe she's worried that if they become too well known then it could potentially I mean, technically what she's mm -hmm. done is illegal so well not necessarily there's, illegal there's I that would element think. too I, mean, I wonder you can you can create a false identity uh, as long as you're not using it to defraud people and i, I suppose somebody might claim that there was some fraud involved in this but there's a lot of made up, I don't want to say spokespeople, but made up characters who are supposedly founders of companies or, or whatnot that they've never existed. The, the companies don't, don't get in trouble for it. Yeah. But yeah. She probably doesn't want too many people looking too closely at Remington Steel because it's a house of cards. The whole thing would collapse if somebody starts picking at the, oh, yeah. you know, the, the cards For and sure. start pulling them out. At some point, you're going to pull out that wrong card and it's all going to collapse. And, and I think that's what she's concerned about as much as anything else. The integrity of their agency and hers, goes with it, personally. I guess, because it's her, her hard work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. So, okay, that makes sense. She's very angry about this. So she insists that they go to this party because he mentions he was invited to a party. <laughs> what time are you picking me up? Um, <laughs> which I, I found quite cute. And then, of course, we get the scene change where Laura and, and Steele are in the car. She asks who's going to be at the party. And when he mentions 
that it's being held to celebrate the completion of a new, new manuscript by Charlotte Knight. <laughs> she is, you can see her, her whole face just mm-hmm. perk right up. She tells him that every thigh is creamy white, every breast is full and heaving, and men don't caress their women, they seize them. And yeah, yeah. she's read those books. <laughs> she's read every yeah. single one. Of well, them. <laughs> and, and then she realizes what she's saying, and it's like, oh, no, I've never actually read any of the books. I've just heard about <laughs> yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. I've never actually. I don't know. It's kind of, and, and they mention that later on, too, because Mitchell later on says something along the lines of, it sold millions of 80 million copies, yeah. but nobody's read them sort of thing, which is a bit like Nickelback <laughs> albums in that respect. You know, they sold a bunch of albums, but really, does anyone admit to listening to Nickelback? I don't think so. <laughs> but it actually makes me think of the entire genre as a whole, because I don't know if you've you've heard this story, but do you know who Diana Gabaldon is? No. So she's written... The Outlander books. Did I just ruin the story? No, no, no. Well, no, that's, I, I imagine that maybe not a lot of people know, but she wrote the Outlander book series, which is now a major television series and is, you know, hugely, hugely famous. She wrote them back in the eighties and the first book came out, I think in 1980 something. I don't know. I'd have to look it up, but when she essentially wrote the books initially, she had meant it to be a book set in the 1700s. And that was that. Her leading character was supposed to be a seventeen or you know an eighteenth century woman. She kept talking like a twentieth century woman. So she said, "Okay, fine. I guess if I can't get my character to behave, I will make it a time traveling novel." So she had her character be a woman who travels two hundred years back in time and meets this you know Scottish man, and they end up getting married, and a bunch of stuff happens. It's very historical, over a thousand pages. The book itself was never meant to be a romance novel. It was a there was a bunch of genres sort of mishmashed into one. But at the time, the idea of general fiction wasn't a category in bookstores. So when she went to her publisher, they basically said, all right, we'll publish it as a romance novel. You'll get 500,000 copies initially printed. And she said, but it's not a romance. Like, there's romance in it, but it's not a romance novel. That is not the genre. It's, you know, she had a PhD. This woman had meticulously researched every bit of historical data of this time period And she didn't want to be sort of pigeonholed into, quote, a women's fiction category. The publisher said, fine, we can put it in sci-fi, but you'll only get 50,000 copies. And so she went, well, okay, fine, 500,000, it goes in the romance section. But this kind of makes me think of the way that this particular genre is kind of looked down upon. Because Laura talks about, you know, every thigh being creamy white. She clearly Uh loves these books. Why is it such a bad thing, then, that she admit to loving these books. This genre sells, as they say in the in the episode, millions and millions of copies, and yet no one admits to to reading them. I, I, I guess maybe the association with the trashy novel. You know, you can have different books in a genre, and some are well written and not exploitive. Uh, you know, of of either the the genre, true, of the readers, you know, or or anything. There there are literature type books, and then you have the the other end of the spectrum, which is the trashy novel. And you can have those in romance. You can have them in science fiction. You know, in in science fiction, they were called oh yeah what, for sure pulp novels. I think. So I, yeah. I think certain genres get stuck with labels 
that they can't overcome. And so if you get stuck in that genre, you get stuck with that label, whether it's deserved or not yeah. for that particular. Well, actually, I was going to say for that particular uh, work of, of fiction or, or work of whatever it is. But even the whole entire genre may be unfairly labeled with it. So I think it's just the association. You know, it's it's the uh, the supermarket checkout yeah. type books. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> the Harlequin. And interestingly, if you look into Harlequin, which I have, I can't remember why. I think it was because we used to, for fun, sometimes we would buy like the really, really bad ones and read them out loud and just have a field day laughing at them because they were just so badly written. But we looked into what does it take to get a Harlequin novel written? And actually it just has to be 50,000 words and it has to meet a few parameters and you can submit it unsolicited. So there's your answer as to why those books are usually bad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you're right in terms of being pigeonholed into a trashy or not trashy, but even with a show like Remington Steel, the assumption is that the focus is always on the romance between the two characters, that there's nothing else that the show has going for it. And that's complete crap, I think, in my opinion. There's there's so much else that the show has layers and layers and layers of allusions to old cinema, allusions to literature, allusions to the comedy, the the slapstick, everything else that goes with it might sometimes get ignored over the charisma of the two leads and the, the will they, won't they storyline. So I kind of wonder if that's, if that runs parallel sometimes. The will they, won't they storyline is very formulaic of a lot of television. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of people oh, sure. respond negatively to is the formulaic aspects of different things. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's, it's like the classification of romance novels as trashy novels. It's, is much a reaction to the formulaic turn it out, you know, cookie cutter type yep. uh, approach to things as it is anything else. So I think that's fair. That's my response. And then you've got, yeah. Okay. Laura and Steele, they come into the party. Knight's husband is getting drunk. Laura immediately wants to find Forsyth, get out of there, cancel the book. Steele reminds her that she needs to pretend she works for him, which had to have been a, a painful moment where he kind of pokes her at her a little bit. Uh, Forsyth walks over and of course, Steele does not cancel the book. He listens to Forsyth yammer on. Laura walks away to go find him, bumps into Mitch Knight, introduces himself. When she realizes who he is again, her face lights up. <laughs> you know, you're married to Charlotte Knight, the man behind the woman, which turns out to be extremely true. And Steele correctly identifies Laura as the woman behind the man. She almost admits to having read all of her books, stops herself beforehand. Well, no, she does. She does. I mean, she gets to that point yeah, and, yeah. and it, she says, it's all, a real pleasure. I mean, I've read all of, <laughs> and then stops. It, it's yeah. the cat's out of the bag. I'm sorry. And of course, the look on Steele's <laughs> face. Yep. <laughs> it's like catching her in like a hand mm -hmm. of the cookie jar moment, yeah. you know? And that's when Mitchell Knight says, Something he yeah, and that's when Mitchell and I says the line that you referenced of don't be embarrassed. Nobody admits to reading Charlotte's books, but they sell three yeah. million copies. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then of course they they he does the whole bit on the balcony, they're 35 floors up. He he his description of Charlotte, which turns out to be yes. from the book itself. The gardener, his name is Tony. I don't want to go too far ahead, but this show really likes buff dudes named <laughs> Tony. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> and, 
And the titles of the books, I don't know what you made of them, but I giggle every time I hear them. Twice Nightly, Bated Breath, and of course, my favorite prone positions. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's the kind of title that these, <laughs> these are... somewhat sensationalist <laughs> books would get. I mean, that's that's what they would title Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for oh, for sure. And then, of course, he tells them that he thinks he's, he, he describes this chapter he read and how it describes, you know, has him falling 35 floors to his death. Laura says, well, you know, did you go to the police or can you leave her? And he's, he, oh, I can't leave Charlotte. So she's, well, I don't know what I can do with you. And his comment about, yeah, you're right. It's a bit premature. It's a little bit <laughs> implying that I guess I'll have to be dead before you'll investigate it. And then, of course, yes. he dies. Surprise. Who saw that coming? <laughs> Which, ouch. Yeah. No. Nobody. Nobody saw that coming. Total shock. <laughs> um, and the chaos here is really good. Laura's really shaken by what she's seen, which I thought is an interesting reaction, considering how many dead bodies they've seen already. You know, it was a bit odd that she seemed pretty shaken up. And they... It, her Charlotte's agent comes over, introduces himself to Steele. He doesn't even look at Laura. The first thing Steele says to him is Laura Holt, forcing him to acknowledge that she's there. And the look on her face, pure resignation, irritation. This has happened a million times, but it's a good moment for Steele, who almost forces the agent not only to look at Laura, but acknowledge her as a professional. Why do you think he did this? Earlier, he wanted to write a book taking credit entirely for her work or for fictionalizing it. I don't know. Maybe it's a preemptive move to shift the blame a little bit because, I mean, after all, she was pretty much the one who turned down Mitchell as far as helping him out. True. You know, so I, I, I don't know. I wonder if it was one of those rare moments of self-reflection and realizing that he's maybe pushed her a little too far, especially after a big tragedy, because they were there. He was kind of pushing her buttons, not canceling the book, which she had demanded that he do. And then this thing happens. And he didn't even try. He didn't even try to cancel the book because, as you were saying, Forsyth was, was no, you know, he didn't. He stood there. <laughs> um, saying, well, why don't you guys go get drunk? And then once you're drunk, I'll, I'll come back and we'll hammer out the deal. And we'll Laura says, well, deal, I don't yeah. think he got the message. And what message? You know, Steele didn't even try. So it, it may be a little bit yeah. of, of um, he kind of got him into this situation. And now Laura's kind of in a position where she might have some responsibility for it because she was, like I said, the one who essentially turned Mitchell down and had they taken some slightly different course of action, he might not have been dead and he's uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. It could be. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, his agent, Charlotte's agent implies mm -hmm. that Mitch was an alcoholic who was obsessed with his wife. Laura is immediately suspicious of this death and anybody I think would be. The editor says that the fictional death scene Mitch described isn't in the book, hands her the manuscript, which Steele tries to fob off the situation and, and starts to do what Laura asked him to do and turn down the book. And then, of course, she steps on his foot, yeah. uh, stopping him. Yeah. She, <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> he ends up, I, like, she must have really done a number on his foot. I wonder if she was wearing heels. 
But, you know, she's right in the sense, and you're right, that anybody would be suspicious because the reason those rails on those buildings are that high up is so that you can't accidentally fall over them. You have to try. Yeah. And I think it's odd that that nobody thought of suicide to begin with, considering he was apparently so miserable. Like, nobody mentions that as as an answer. It was, oh, it was an accident. Well, I... I don't know of any police, as you said, any police officer, investigator worth their salt who would take a look at that balcony and go, oh, yeah, you could totally accidentally fall off that. Yeah, they wouldn't. You'd have to climb up it. Yes. You know, so it, <laughs> um, <laughs> but my, I'm, I'm wondering, like, she's clearly curious about his death. She's suspicious for sure. And I get that business is slow. So I'm assuming that's why she pursues it. They have no client, but. At the same time, I wonder if it's just, as you said, the guilt that's motivating her, if she had done something, if she'd said something. Well, I, I think it's a combination of a couple of different factors because, and, and this may speak to your question of why didn't anybody consider suicide, is because if you're going to commit suicide, I would think that you wouldn't broadcast it in the way that Mitchell Knight did. You know, this is how it's going to happen. And yeah. then it happens exactly like he predicted. And of course, he said that he read it in the book, and then it happens. So that doesn't sound yeah. like something that somebody who's going to commit suicide would do. I mean, to to say that it's in a book, it just doesn't seem like a suicide type situation. I mean, unless he's really trying to, he really wants to destroy somebody's life, and so he commits suicide and, and tries to make it look like they killed him, uh, which is a, a popular plot line in in some mysteries. But yeah, it just doesn't. You, you just wouldn't do that. You say, hey, look, they're trying to kill me. This is how they're planning to do it. And then it happens, and then, oh, it must be suicide. Eh, that just doesn't make sense either. Yeah, I think you're right. You wouldn't, if you were trying to do a cry for help, so to speak, you would just come out and say it, or you'd leave it maybe a note, but putting it as a book, like this was a chapter, and then asking for help. It's a weird situation all around. And then I think... A lot of it is guilt. I think Laura's feeling like if she had listened to him or said, yes, let's go talk about it or something that maybe he wouldn't have gotten pushed over. And of course, she says the next day to Steele as he's icing his poor foot that she can smell it. She smells a murder. And Steele doesn't believe there's a case. Leads to my absolute favorite line in the entire episode, his comment of, did you see the look in that man's eyes? He's seen a lot of shows that aren't listed in the TV guide. (laughs) Yeah, that's a... I don't know why, but that one, it's a rather dated joke now, but still funny if you remember TV guides. Um, But the strangest part of this episode, I think, aside from Steele wanting to have a book about cases he hasn't actually done, is that he doesn't suggest he and Laura go away together. He suggests that they all four of them go away together. We know he wants to get Laura alone. We know he has romantic interest in her We've seen that in the previous episodes, but it's interesting he would push for the whole team to go away together. I'm wondering why you think he's, I have my own theories, but I'm curious, why do you think he suggests all four of them go away? Well, we know that business is slow and if it's that slow, it may not harm the agency much to just close the doors and have everybody take a couple of weeks vacation. And If he's trying to get Laura in a romantic situation and she's resisting, she is wary of going somewhere with him because of that. 
safety in numbers. Well, let's all just go as a group. And if something just happens to happen between us while we're out there as a group, I mean, it's all so <laughs> innocent. But, you know, if it happens, that's where I, I think he was going with that. But I could be wrong. Fair enough. What was your theory? My theory I think I think part of I think what you're saying part of it I agree with for sure. He's definitely hoping for some, you know. Oh, look, we're all out, we're all out as a team building exercise. But look at this romantic restaurant. Let's go here. I think as well though we've seen episodes hints at episodes in the past where it, he's shown himself to be lonely or or what seems you know the episode where his date cancels on him and he's going through every single name he has in his little black book. Or just other incidents where he seems to involve himself when he doesn't necessarily need to. We don't know how many people he knows in L.A. or what connections he has, but he doesn't seem to have a life outside of the the, the team, right? So I wonder if he's, if this is more than just, he wants to be part of the team. He wants to be let in on the inner circle. He doesn't want to be the guy left out on the sidelines and even Murphy is part of that team. So he's willing to, he, he doesn't seem to be terribly antagonistic towards Murphy. It's the other way around for sure, but he seems almost affectionately. He pokes at Murphy just as much as, as he pokes at anybody else. But I don't necessarily think he's, I think he's lonely. I think he wants some, some friends. <laughs> you know what you just said there led my mind to point A to point B to point C, D, and I wound up in a totally weird place that seems to have no 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 relationship <laughs> oh, to where I started. You know how those goes. And I'm th- I'm thinking, buckle up, Hallmark movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. How did you get there? They all dress in red and green and end up in some little small town where people make maple well, syrup for a living. Go on. I mean, that would be the plot of it, but it's that Hallmark movie. Yeah. Oh, Christmas is never a fun time for me. I always had such a bad time at Christmas when I was a kid or, you know, whatever. I've got bad associations with Christmas, so I want something to distract myself. And so let's all just go do something. Yeah. And then Christmas happens. And and it, Christmas could be pretty romantic. Just saying, like, there's, you know... <laughs> Chances for stuff to take place. Well, but even if that's not the motive, the Hallmark movie premise would be that he's just unhappy yeah. with Christmas. And so he's surrounding himself by people to distract him, which is kind of what you're saying there, but different motivation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we've seen that. We see that later on in seasons ahead, but there is a Christmas episode and he's he's not exactly Mr. Bells of Holly. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that could be it, too, that he just – he. Mm-hmm. Holidays are tough, right? So you want something to distract. And Laura is obviously looking for something to distract her taking on this non-existent case. So this could be both their ways of coping with yeah. holiday stress. Um, <laughs> Murphy comes in, asks them to keep it down because he's trying to sleep. I Murphy is pure gold in this episode. The moments that he has, which are few and far between, are really good. And Steele says that he plans to prove Laura doesn't have a case. He And this is a moment where he tries to sort of use Murphy as an ally. Yeah. He kind of grabs him and he says, like, look at her. Do you, what do you see her doing? You know, <laughs> and poor Murphy doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He kind of 
backs off of it and he runs away actually i think he says like can i leave now <laughs> when they start fighting and uh yeah so he basically says if he can prove that there's no case they go to jamaica and he's gonna get his hands on everything charlotte knight has ever read and when she asks how he plans to do this he says mrs Steele, his mother taught him it never hurts to ask <laughs> which sure okay yeah <laughs> And then, he, of course, we switch over to Charlotte's apartment. He finds her with Tony, who is 50% of his scenes are shirtless. <laughs> this is one of them. <laughs> She's got something equally revealing. She does not seem sad at all that her husband is dead. She's completely unapologetic. The way they sit down on the couch, mm-hmm. very intimate. And... She asks if she makes him nervous. Why do you think he actually is nervous? Like, he doesn't, he's not committed to Laura in any way, shape, or form. They don't have a relationship. There's nothing that would prevent him from sleeping with her. And she is kind of his type from what we've seen before. So why is he so flustered with her behavior? Is it that or is it that he's got a mission in mind and she's trying to redirect him to something else that isn't his mission and that's what's irritating him because he's there to ask for her work the copies of everything she's written yeah well and also how she writes it i think that's more of a pretext to get to the point where he's getting copies of everything that she's written and of course the ultimate goal is to get laura away from the office with him and so yeah yeah i I think it's just a matter of she's trying to to redirect the conversation in a direction that he hadn't intended and wasn't wanting to go. And so that's what he's responding to. I I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, I think that's part of it for sure. I just, it was, it's an odd reaction considering this is the guy who spent $20,000 on Nadine. Well, here's, here's another thing though. Steele, he's kind of a classy guy and even though he does some things that are kind of sleazy at times, he's not, at heart, really a sleazy person. <laughs> How sleazy would it be to to make a move on a woman who's just lost her husband? Uh, even though she's not obviously, you know, she's obviously True. not all that upset yeah. about it, it would still be kind of sleazy. And even though he doesn't believe there's a case, I guess she could be a murderer too. So I, I think it's as much the fact that he's thinking, you know, no, that's that's just not right. <laughs> Moral compass intervenes. Yeah. Her reaction to him asking how she writes. Very well. (laughs) You really are here for business. She's totally baffled by the fact that he didn't show up to sleep with her. And which I find also very amusing because that's clearly why every man shows up at her door. And, you know, so, you know, oh, so you really are here on business. Oh, okay. And I think this is also another question. Why does she give him all of her tapes? Who would do that? Hmm. I mean, does she have copies of them all? Like, uh, if she doesn't, that's literally all of, like, that's a very, I don't know, I find that very odd that she just kind of gives them a bag full of, oh, here's all my tapes, have at it. Especially since it's the new book, isn't it? Like, here's my unfinished work that's not in in stores yet. I totally (laughs) trust you not to flog it somewhere or sell it. Like, it's just, it's a very strange thing yes, to do <laughs> but uh, you know hey if, if they didn't do it they wouldn't have a point for the plot so that's true it is it's it's it it is in service of the plot for sure because of course the next scene 
Laura shows up at his apartment. She's ready to read the papers that she thinks mm-hmm. he got from Charlotte. And of course, there's a couple of couple of interesting thing about this. Laura's story about her calc professor. She hints at an affair that she had with her college professor when she puts the glasses on. So the teacher in me is completely grossed out by this story entirely. But one thing I wonder about this is she doesn't need the glasses. If she never needed the glasses, why put them on here? Why is she wearing them now? I had that written down as well. It doesn't make (laughs) sense unless you view it from the standpoint that (laughs) if it worked on the calc professor, it might work with him. And then, of course, plausible deniability. Well, I didn't. I wasn't coming on to you. That's right. It was the glasses. (laughs) It's the librarian look that everybody, you know. Yeah. (laughs) The glasses did it. It's the sexy librarian. (laughs) That reminds me. Did you, you, you watch Bones? Yes. That episode of Bones where they're on the plane and he, and he walks up and he's like, take your hair out and, you know, toss it around. And, and she's like, why? <laughs> she does it. And he's like, never mind. He walks away. Uh, uh, put, put your That's- glasses in your mouth, <laughs> chew on them. You know, the, the sexy library and, and say yeah. that, that book's do back she, and whatever. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I was trying to remember exactly what it was. <laughs> And she's yeah. totally baffled by it. Does it? Totally That's the only reason I can it. think of why Laura would do that here is that she's wanting him to go for the sexy librarian fantasy thing. And she has plausible deniability. Yeah. And I mean, it hints at the rule breaker part of her personality, the part of her that is absurdly passionate as is, you know, later on described in a future episode. And we sometimes see, and and it, maybe also the woman who reads Charlotte Knight novels and enjoys. I, I was going to say that earlier. Yeah, I mean the the fact that she reads these and and is so excited to meet yeah. Charlotte Knight and is so enthused that she's even willing to admit something that nobody else will do that she's yeah. actually read the books. Yeah, it kind of hints at this other yep. Laura. So uh, yeah, I think you're right. That that all kind of plays in together. And she looks cute in the glasses. I think they work for her. I can see why it worked mm-hmm. on the uh, aside, yeah, aside from wrong. the, ugh, sorry, <laughs> the teacher cringe, but yeah, <laughs> the rest of it, I could, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've never bought the line. Uh, there was that old line, you know, guys don't make passes at girls who wear glasses. I've, I've never understood that because I, I think a lot of times. Is that a line? Is that a thing that gets said? Uh, well, it used to be. Oh. Used to be, uh, probably not anymore, but <laughs> I, I never understood it because I, if they're the right glasses, you know, hey. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that those cat's eye glasses that, um, Lisa Loeb wore for the, for the song, stay, I missed you. Like those became a huge hit in the nineties and every girl was wearing them. Cause it was like that cute alternative girl look. So I don't, <laughs> glasses, glasses work. Just saying. <laughs> I don't think cat's eyes would have worked for Laura, but I, I think the ones uh, she was wearing worked really good. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was very period accurate. Mm-hmm. Like the big, big glasses in, in the eighties were, were very popular. So they start listening to the tapes. Why did they start with chapter seven? Does Charlotte not label her chapters? It was the first one they grabbed. <laughs> like, but I, I don't know. They, her organizing and filing system is terrible. You would think, A, the tapes would be labeled chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and B, you'd think Steele would look for the first one. Why would you even want to listen to a book middle of the way in? It is kind of an odd thing to do, but who knows? 
But I think it was also probably because we needed to hear that bit or something. It was the same line that Mitchell and I used in describing Charlotte. Which, yeah. That should have been a clue. Hello, somebody. You would think. You would think because he obviously, he claims to have read it in her latest book. And you, you would think as well the fact that they were given a physical manuscript mm-hmm. at the beginning. And now he's been given a bag of tapes and he's told that she doesn't actually write her books. Why did nobody remember that there was a physical manuscript typed? And that the line he was saying was straight out of that book. Yeah. It's like the toodaloo all over again. <laughs> Just right there in plain sight so that you overlook it. <laughs> and they, well, I, he is, still doesn't, Steele doesn't believe there's a case. So there's maybe an excuse for him, but... Laura, she should have noticed because, again, you're right. That's exactly what Mitch says on the balcony right before he's tossed over. So, <laughs> you know, it should have been a that should have clued in. And then, of course, they have difficulty listening to the tapes, which foreshadows some of the scenes later on in Love Among the Steel. But it's interesting that it's Steel that's uncomfortable with it. He turns off the tape a second time and she's amused by it. Like the look on her face is pretty, you know, she she's not bothered by it in the slightest, obviously because she's read all these books already. She knows mm-hmm. exactly what she's in for. Why do you think it makes him uncomfortable? Maybe it's a little bit too close to what he's feeling. Could be. Do you think, because she says, what do you think you're protecting me from? Do you think he sees her as somehow less, like, sexually adventurous? More innocent. Because yeah, she hasn't could slept be. with him? Because, I mean, he, he knows that she's mm-hmm. lived with a man. But she may still be somewhat innocent in this other aspect of of life and relationships. And so maybe he thinks he's protecting her from something that would shock her. But she's read all the books and he knows that. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I don't know. But, you know, it does seem like that after they turn the tapes back on again, you know, because she goes through. This is I think this is where she goes through the story about the professor, the cop professor. It worked. And then they turned the tapes back on. And at that point. It worked. Yeah. From that point on to the end of the scene, my impression was that Laura was starting to get a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I may be yeah. reading that wrong, but. It might, she did. There was a couple of. She gets out of popcorn. She starts to. And again, I'm going to point this out. This is couch watch. Second time. Why are they on the floor? <laughs> <laughs> His couch is comfortable. Sit on it. I, I don't know. You, you you got this thing for sitting on the floor, don't you? And, uh, for not sitting on the floor. Yeah. Oh, so from a practical standpoint for Mr. Steele, he wants to get Laura all snuggled up. The floor is not the place, my friend. That's true. You get that's her on true. the couch. She falls asleep. She's in your arms. I mean. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It just, I, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's afraid of messing up his furniture. <laughs> you know, he doesn't want yes. the popcorn to stain it. Who knows? But <laughs> so they listen to the tape and you're right. I th- I think eventually it, it does kind of look like she's slightly uncomfortable as well. And then they both fall asleep listening to the tapes, which of course allows the tapes, to, the batteries to run out. The tape goes into slow motion, steals way. <laughs> There's a lot of references to his mother here because he wakes up and he says, I'll be there in a minute, mother. <laughs> What was he dreaming? Who knows? <laughs> Genuinely curious because, and how coincidental it is that they woke up the exact moment 
that no, I think it was here they wake up to the moment oh, where yeah. Mitch the line that Mitch narrated. said that you're right, you're right. I was I was wrong yeah. on that earlier. But either way, like it yeah, they wake up to that and then of course that's when Laura puts two and two together on the books themselves that Charlotte never wrote them, that Mitchell wrote them. He describes when they when they go and sort of confront Russell about it. He describes how he purchased the manuscript, and he says that out of Mitchell's mouth, it sounded like pornography, but out of hers, it sounded like erotica. So once again, we have a scenario of characters creating a fiction to sell something. We've seen this like three times now. We got this with Ratui. We got this with this episode. Even Laura's mother makes a comment about creating uh-huh. a fiction about someone. This is something the show seems to keep circling back to. Do you think it's because it's in the first season and it's kind of trying to reassert what the show is meant to be doing or just cheeky ways of inserting this whole idea of like creating something out of nothing. The whole premise of the show is that this guy doesn't exist. He was a fiction created by Laura. And so, yeah, I think you're right that it Mm -hmm. definitely is something that they can keep coming back to in different forms to just kind of reinforce that whole everything's nothing you see is real. Everything you see is fake. And the people aren't real. They're all fake. (laughs) And moreover, these fake people are going to create other fake people to fake out the other fake people that these other fake people created. (laughs) So, yeah. Yes. Lots of fakes. No, I I think you're right. It's it's just something that they keep coming back to because it works so well, not only within the context of the the episode, but within the context of reinforcing the basic premise. And you've got, for this episode, the premise is... so for the entire show, our Remington Steel, the premise is that there, you know, a woman trying to make it in a quote man's profession, so she creates a fictional man to to do that, right? In this episode, it's a man trying to make it in a quote woman's profession, i.e., romance novels, and so he gets somebody to to be the front woman for his novels. Do you think the books would be as popular or, or as successful if people knew that a man wrote them? Is Russell right that? Out of you know, out of a man's mouth, it's pornography. Out of a woman's, it's erotica. There is probably some truth to that, yes, because it's the perception of the motive of the person doing the writing, of the fact that you know, stereotypically, men are just sexist pigs, and all they want to do is hop in in the sack with a woman and just you know get everything <laughs> that they can from her, and then you know, why buy the cow when you can just get the milk for free? So, <laughs> love the cliche. All of the most horrible cliches in one. I get what you're. I I know you don't actually. I, it's just kind of funny to hear. Like, but no, I I think there is that perception, and certainly, probably more so in the past than there is now. And yeah. and then, in the reverse, it's somehow more acceptable for women to have that because I mean that's what women do. Where they go to the hair hairdresser and they just talk about their sex lives with their friends. You know, while they're under the dryer getting their hair. That's the perception. Yeah. <laughs> In the rollers. Right. So, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's right uh, in terms of the, the accuracy of it. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. And I think, too, if you look at perception, if you know that a man has written it, and as Laura described, right, every thigh is creamy white, every breast is full and heaving, every, you know, women don't caress, or men don't caress mm-hmm. the women, they seize them. If you are looking at that 
as being written from a woman's perspective, then it reads more as this is a fantasy written by a woman and this is what a woman is saying that she wants. But if it's written by a man, like you said, there's that perceived idea of sexism and that perceived idea of like, you know, oh, now it's not glorifying women. It's objectifying, right? If every thigh is creamy Mm -hmm. white and every breast is full and heaving. So it could come across as, you know, oh, you don't want to caress women. You just want to seize them. You, you, as you said, you sexist pig, you, you know, whatever it is. So yeah, I think it, it, it all comes down to perception and how we look at these genres and these, you know, pieces of work or whatever you want to call it. But it, it's interesting because Laura immediately understands and she says, we understand the problem better than, better than, you know, but she of course is still convinced that Mitch's death was a murder. So they go back to the office and this is where they have their fight. And, you know, Steele accuses Laura of being a workaholic, claims that she's afraid of having time on her hands because it might mean she has to get close to some of the people Mm -hmm. she works with, i.e. him. Do you think he's genuinely angry in this scene or is this just another act to try to get her to go to Jamaica? Um, Hang on, let me find that part in the... This is the one I think you're talking about. It drives you crazy that there are no mysteries to solve, no clues to ponder, no suspects to suspect. Yeah. I think he's frustrated with her. I think that's what's coming out here is he's frustrated with her. He sees all of this, this case and everything that's going on right now as her way of avoiding dealing with him, dealing with her emotions, her presumed feelings toward him. She's trying to bury herself in work. And I think that's what he's upset about. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And I, Murphy, I heard fighting, so I knew mom and dad were home. He just has some really great lines in this episode. He and obviously he's amused watching Steele and Laura argue about being a workaholic. It, It probably nothing pleases him more than to see them fight. She gets genuinely angry with him, storms out, and he says, "Last chance, go away with me." And I think you're right. I think there's the moment of truth. She hesitates. She falters. You can see in her eyes that she's looking for an excuse or a reason not to go. And I think you're right. She's using work to avoid him. She's using it to avoid thinking about what she might have, you know, what feelings she might have for him. And downtime to her is a bad thing because it means that she has to think about those things. So I think this is a genuine argument. I think it starts out maybe on Steele's part as being a bit contrived to, to try to steer mm-hmm. her in a specific direction. And then I think as he gets on a roll, he becomes more genuinely hurt that she's doing everything she can. They, there's no client. Nobody's paying them to do this. This is entirely Laura, her own curiosity, her own determination to prove that she's right. And of course, he's gone along with it to a point, but now he is feeling like she's doing this to avoid him. So. Yeah. And I think all of that frustration he's feeling about her putting up all these roadblocks and her being unwilling to acknowledge that maybe she has some feeling and her ambivalence, even in what she does say, it's all coming out and he can't address it directly either i mean he's he's playing just as much a a game of avoidance as she is because 
He's blaming it all on yeah. the lists and the paperclip stacked in the drawer, What you know, whatever it is that he's hollering at her about. Those are all just covers for his unwillingness to address the issue head on. And then when he does, it's it's still more yeah. of that, let's just run away and, and have fun at the beach type thing. It's it's not he's yeah. he's again, he's afraid to express what he really feels in a serious way. So he's got to be flippant, he's gotta be I was gonna say suave, but it's not the suave, it's it's the uh the not really sleazy, but just kind of the more crude approach. Not totally crude, but just back to the let's hop in the sack. Yeah, and not quite that that crude, but more of the let's just have some fun. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> we don't know where it'll go. Who knows? <laughs> date Mike from the office. <laughs> he wants to be date Mike because he doesn't want to be serious Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I like oh, that. Sorry, date we, Mike. we should probably not use so many other TV <laughs> yeah. references, but but I mean that's you <laughs> <laughs> have bones. We've got. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people are going to get educated about a lot of other TV shows just by listening to this. Yeah, exactly. Daniel That's Steele, right. Charles Dickens, there's Diana Cavillson. We've had it. Yes. <laughs> we've run the gambit here. <laughs> but then we've got, so Laura, obviously she storms off. She goes to Charlotte's apartment to look for evidence. Tony is there again, shirtless. I guess the, the heat in that apartment. What, do you know what you're looking for? Uh, well, physical um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> evidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he definitely flusters her in the same sort of way that Charlotte flustered Steele. And it, it's funny. And Tony claims to be an Ivy League gigolo, which I found an amusing <laughs> way of describing himself. But he tells her that he's a Harvard graduate, and he claims that Charlotte has been mentoring him on a novel. Why would he ask for Charlotte to mentor him when he knows that she's not the writer? I mean, I get, we know eventually that he is the the villain, and he wrote the third book, but he's he's clearly there writing his, quote, serious novel. Is it just a, a comfortable place to to hang his hat, or... Charlotte is clearly not mentoring anybody. She can't write. <laughs> it's not really that she's mentoring him in writing. The exact line was a mutual friend introduced me to Charlotte and, sh and um, <clears throat> she's been something of a mentor. It's a euphemism. It's not that ah, he's, okay. she's mentoring him in <laughs> writing. It's that he's mentoring him in other things. Gotcha. She's mentoring <laughs> him in. <clears throat> Gotcha. Okay. Wow, that flew right over my head. Usually I catch the euphemisms. That one I missed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, then. <laughs> That's okay. You're forgiven. Uh, he's <laughs> you learn right. something new every day. Yes. This is an educational show, people. He did write prone <laughs> position. And I guess we're not supposed to know that at this point. So, yeah. He's using her for work research. Yes. Makes more sense. Yes. <laughs> That's why he never has a shirt on. <laughs> or she's using him for... Yeah. yeah. Uh, so then he suggests that Mitch's death was a suicide. This is the first time that option has been put on the table. And Laura accepts this explanation. She seems satisfied by it. And I kind of wonder why. Why is she satisfied? Because you pointed out earlier that it's a silly way to, to announce your... 
I, I guess if you're planning to do something like that, it's not, it's a weird way to do it. And it, it to me, feels kind of odd that you would announce it before you. So, why do you think she just sort of accepts that and she seems content with that explanation? I think, and, and this, I wasn't, I, I didn't write this down in that context, but I think it fits this context of, of your question. Tony, when he's talking about it being a suicide, says, in his own mind, Mitchell Knight was a very accomplished man, except no one knew it. Can you imagine what it must have been like working very hard, but having someone uh. else win the plaudits? Yes, she can. That is exactly where she is at at yeah, this she, point. Obviously. And has been since Steel walked in, yeah. or actually since she created Steel, even before he walked in. That's exactly where she's at. For and sure, yeah. I think even though there's still sufficient question as to what actually happened, I think it is him hitting that line with her that it destroys everything else that she's been thinking up to this point because now she can't get past this because that, she's living this. True. Yeah. And I, I mean, obviously we don't think that Laura would ever come to, to be that depressed, but I think you're right that she can understand how this man got to mm -hmm. be yeah. so depressed when all of his work was being attributed to somebody else. Yeah, for sure. She's got to be feeling that fr frustration, maybe at a lower level than he, at, at a lower level than Mitchell Knight was, or then is being attributed to Mitchell Knight. But she's feeling that I'm sure all the time. So she, I mean, she goes back and she Steele shows up to admit that he does think that there's a case. So for some reason, he's jumped on board the there is a case train. Why do you think he suddenly? is on her, like, I mean, she says, I don't smell it anymore. And he says, aha, but I have, she's saying, let's go to Jamaica. Why is he fighting her on this? I think it's because he did the research that she didn't. He was listening to the tapes and on the tapes, Mitchell Knight had writer's block. So now all of a sudden, okay, we know that Charlotte Knight was a fake. Okay. They've admitted that it's not a big deal. But now there's another fake behind the fake, because if Mitchell Knight had writer's block, he didn't write the new book. So who did? Why are they still lying to us if there's nothing to, you know, it's why would you try to hide something if you got nothing to hide? So is it natural curiosity, do you think? Because technically, if he had ignored that, that knowledge, he, he could have been like, oh, yeah, there is no case. Let's let's go to Jamaica. I've got four tickets booked. He, yeah, he. If he hadn't stumbled across that tape of... Like he could, I mean, no, he didn't have to no, tell her. but <laughs> if he hadn't stumbled across that tape, yeah, he probably would have said, okay, here, here's the tickets, let's go. And he would have let Loris admit that there was no yeah. case. But I think it's that, you know, we've talked about it before. He's got the instincts. They're, they're not honed, they're not trained. Yeah. But he's got the instincts. And I think it was just the discovery of that tape where he's got writer's block that it triggers something in his mind. And he says, wait a second, there isn't something right here. And it, it could just wind up being nothing, but there's still, as he said, in order for there to be a case, there has to be a mystery, a circumstance or an occurrence that remains unexplained. Now at that time he was arguing the other side, but now he's come across something that, that there's a mystery. There's a circumstance and a, an occurrence that hasn't been explained. And I think that makes the difference for him.
Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think that makes sense. And of course, <laughs> he plays part of the tape, references The Shining. This is another, so maybe you can help me here as a, as a person who was not an infant in the 80s. Well, actually, this movie came out before I was born. But he says to her, did you see The Shining? And she says, did anyone see The Shining? I'm confused. Kubrick is probably one of the most famous directors of all time. Was this not, uh, was this not a hit at the box office? Like, did people not actually go and see this movie? I didn't see The Shining. <laughs> I think they did. I, I'm not into that genre movie, but I did huh? because of that line. I did do a little. See, I love horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> I did do a little research into it, and I found on a website called Den of Geek, and um, Den of Geek. I love Den of Geek. They have an article there about The Shining, and according to them, the movie had a 19 million dollar budget, but only grossed 44 million dollars. That's not Oof. a huge hit. No. Yeah, it was. Uh, only a moderate commercial success during its theatrical run and was on the whole seen as a disappointment by audiences and critics alike. I didn't find favor in its original release with many in the wider critical community. Sniffy Lee, Sniffy Lee. Yeah, that's what they had written there. Concluding that it was just a silly ghost story and beneath the <laughs> talents of the director. So yeah, it wasn't. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was more that, it was beneath Kubrick to even lend himself. Yeah, because to it. it was just it's just a silly ghost story is, is what they're saying here. So why would you do that? Right. Which is kind of funny because this whole episode seems focused on dismissing genres of work as oh it's a silly this or it's a silly that. So yeah, huh. and they they went on to say that this was reflected in The Shining becoming the only one of Kubrick's post-1960 films to not receive a single Oscar or Golden Globe nomination in any category. Not that he just didn't win. He didn't even get a nomination for it. Wow. In fact, The Shining's most significant piece of contemporary recognition was to earn the filmmaker a nomination for Worst Director at the inaugural Golden Raspberry Awards in 1981. Ooh. So, yeah, it was not well thought of. Ouch. Okay. (laughs) and i know Stephen. see i didn't know that part of it i knew stephen king hated it he felt that it completely destroyed his book and i've read the shining and i've seen the shining so i can say from both perspectives that the film does not in any way sort of represent the core of what stephen king wrote in the in the book the character that you know goes insane is a very meek, very mild sort of man who doesn't, he hated the casting of Nicholson. He felt Nicholson had too much violence in his face to begin with that the transition of Nicholson going to, you know, becoming a crazy, you know, man trying to kill his wife was too easy to be believed. He wanted somebody who was less believable to go on a killing spree. So I knew that King didn't like it. I didn't realize the rest of the general public didn't like it. So that was a, I guess, a pop culture reference that Laura has that <laughs> would have been very relevant at the time. But given the the amount of sort of, the film is, I think, maybe viewed a bit differently now. But Yeah, I think I, I read something somewhere when I was doing the research that it has since become something of a cult classic. But yeah, it, apparently it was not well-loved. Yeah, I mean, they made a sequel to it, which, I mean, came out fairly recently. They made Dr. Sleep, which mm. had Ewan McGregor in it and went, you know, was a 
sort of sequel to the book of the movie. It was, anyway. (laughs) So back to the episode. Laura and Steele go back to Charlotte's place where they have gathered Russell, Charlotte, Dennis at the party that Steele has insisted they put together. His his flair for the dramatic. He is such a drama queen. This is reminiscent of earlier episodes, you know, which they have all the suspects for dinner and tempered or... He accuses them all until, of course, Laura steps in and and reveals the killer. Only this time, she has no idea who it is. So it's hilarious to watch him go through every single potential suspect, find out that he's wrong, expect that Laura will jump in if he embarrasses himself. And then when he kind of like slides over to her and says, okay, who did it? And she's like, I don't know. I don't, (laughs) I don't, I told you, I thought there wasn't a case. So well. She's she's been in this position before where he's off and running and she doesn't know who did it. But once he starts going down his wrong path, that sets her up for knowing what it is. But here yeah. he's gone down every <laughs> single path that he, he can go down and nothing's turned up and she's still not. Yeah, you're right. She's still not got a clue. And my my the thing that comes to my mind is the line uh, from a not Eric Idle, but one of the other Monty Python guys about grabbing the wrong end of the stick It's it's, and that's what he's doing. I mean, he's, he's just, he's be- beaten at everything and nothing's fallen out and it's, it's embarrassing. And, and oh, yeah. once yeah. again, she lets him just run off and run wild and doesn't do anything to, to try and stop him. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't get her. This one's a bit different too, because as you mentioned with the other two examples, she at least had an idea. With Tempered, she made the the you know the motions of going through the tea situation because mm-hmm. she had an idea. And with Steelwater's Run Deep, it was the same thing. She thought she knew what was going on with Ratui, and he comes in with the empty chest or whatever, and and she kind of lets him go off because she's as you mentioned in the in the other episode we recorded that she suddenly has a bit of doubt. Oh, he's got this thing. He says he knows where. George Kaplan is. So in both those cases, she had an idea, but this case, she has no idea. So you're right. Why the hell does she let him go off like that? Especially since when he's done and he says, okay, who did it? She's like, I don't know. Like you've, you've basically made an idiot out of yourself in front of all these people. Maybe she was kind of hoping that him making an idiot out of himself in front of Forsyth would kill the book deal. Could be, (laughs) could be. Well, especially once she, once he accused Forsyth, it's not just that he embarrassed himself. He accused Forsyth. Yeah. yeah. He's like, this isn't going well for your book deal. Could be she just thought, okay, well, this will torpedo the deal and I yes. won't have to deal with yeah. it. <laughs> Very well. Could have been. But then, of course, she kind of inches to the side and sees Tony in the room typing. And that's when it clues in that he had said to her earlier that he only ever types. And, of course, we know Charlotte, quote, Mitch, whoever dictated the books. So she kind of makes that connection between that written manuscript that Mitch had said he read and puts her plan into action by saying, Oh no, 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 we'd love to do a book deal. They go into, into Tony's office to get Russell to sign the book contract, obviously hoping to catch him. Laura uses her charm to get Tony to offer to type up the changes. My question here, he sits down and he just starts typing. If they needed to add extra clauses and they've only just come up with this idea on the spot, where is he typing from? Like, what is his source? Wouldn't somebody need to say to him what to type? Because if it's already written down, why would they need to type? I'm confused. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, because he is, he's typing off of 
some other document. So he's reading something. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was something that was handwritten. So if they've already got some other document typed up, then. Maybe it was something that was handwritten. Maybe. I mean, they obviously yeah. got that done pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's that's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. And it's Steele here who figures out, Laura's figured out Tony did it. Steele, though, he figures out his motive, which I find really interesting because she's she's figured out that he wrote the third book. But it's Steele that kind of fills in the blanks as to why he would kill. Uh-huh. He's a serious writer. He doesn't want to be associated with this trash. But it would be profitable trash. Yeah, it would be. and it. But again, I think this goes back to you saying that Steele has at least the instincts for it, however unrefined. He makes an idiot out of himself in front of the party goers, but when it comes down to it, he's able to fill in the blanks, and he knows what's important, even if he doesn't know why. So I think that was a good moment for him. And then, of course, we get the tag scene for this one. She coming in, this is, I love this tag scene. She comes into his office pretending to narrate a steamy chapter and then stands there and kind of proudly says, you know what I'm doing? Nothing. (laughs) Um, And it's very cute. It's very playful. It shows, I guess maybe, I'm wondering if you got the same impression. Like It shows kind of like a genuine friendship that's being built at this point. This sort of like, look at me, I'm doing nothing. Yeah, it's it's, um, maybe the next layer of comfortableness i want to say <laughs> uh, next layer of them being comfortable with each other yeah Com- comfortability <laughs> you know to to be able to not just joke in kind of a obligatory way or a digging way where that there's a, a kind of a little bit of a barb underneath it no this is this is just strictly a joke between them a, a casual lighthearted com- uh, comment between them that has none of that underlying current to it it's just hey you know what i'm i'm you've got me i'm doing nothing it feels kind of weird but i I mean yeah i can do it (laughs) she has a sudden need to balance her checkbook (laughs) speaking of books whatever happens which has about the remington steel book yes speaking of books because they signed the contract i think i guess it just never happens yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. He was typing it he, up. He agreed to it. <laughs> Forsyth agreed to it. I wonder if after Forsyth is revealed, or sorry, after Steele reveals Tony to be the, the killer, that Forsyth realized that hiring, uh, having a book written by Remington Steele might be more trouble than it's <laughs> worth. <laughs> Very possibly, yes. He reveals all of your authors are killers. Well, I mean, he basically killed the Charlotte Knight franchise. Like, if mm-hmm. they've got nobody, Mitchell Knight is dead, and clearly Tony's never going to ghostwrite no. another book. So, yeah. Eee. <laughs> no more, no sequel to prone <laughs> positions. Oh, so. Is that it? <laughs> We're at the end. I think it might be, unless unless there are any uh, other mm-hmm. notes or comments. or Nothing that I've got things to add aside from of course the website which we and and of course there's the website www.stillwatching.com show notes links to our amazon us and amazon canada and if you use them to buy the shining or a tale of two cities because we've we've put in charles dickens there as well as as a direct reference we get a small commission off that which is a way for you to help the show other social media resources and links such as the official 
still watching Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages, you will find links to take you to those from our website. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and a link to the Steel Watchers fan group on Facebook, which is the semi-official but totally unofficial home <laughs> home group of the yeah. Steel Watching podcast. It's where all the cool kids are. Yes. <laughs> Can I jump back to the Amazon thing real quick? Yeah, go for it. One of the reasons that we went with the Amazon links is because we did not want to turn this into a begathon. Send us money, send us money, send us money. There are ongoing expenses <laughs> associated with having a podcast. And any kind of income we can generate from these Amazon links will help cover those costs. By doing the Amazon links, people are able to get something for their money that is also helping us. And it doesn't cost them anything extra. But Amazon does have some little gotchas on there. And if people don't know the gotchas, then if they're trying to make purchases using our links to help us and they don't do them correctly, uh, we get nothing out of it. Once you click on that link, last version of the rules I knew of was that you needed to purchase it within 24 hours and you needed to purchase it through the web browser that opens when you click on the link. If you put it in your cart and come back to it within the next 24 hours and purchase it through your browser, it's all good. If you put it in your cart and you go to your Amazon mobile app to purchase it, it doesn't count anymore. So when you're going to do these, if you are going to do these, if you can use the buy it now or just immediately purchase it through your browser that opens up when you click on the link, that will ensure that we do get those commissions. Otherwise, uh, you get a great movie or a great book and it didn't cost you anything extra, but we didn't get anything out of it because most companies, if they can avoid paying something, they're going to. So they've got these rules. No, really? Yeah, it's it's amazing. Companies don't <laughs> want to pay out money for things if they can avoid it. It's crazy. Oh, silly. Anyway, so <laughs> a, enough of the commercial there. Yeah, I guess that's it unless you have anything else. And if you don't, then the only thing left to do is say that our next episode is going to be your steal the one for me. And we'll see you then. We will. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Eric and Sarah here. Just a quick announcement to let you know that, yes, we do appreciate everyone who listens, participates, and supports the podcast in whatever way you do. But we wanted to give an extra thank you to those who are so graciously giving to be monthly financial supporters. We are making live streams of our recording sessions available to anyone who is a monthly financial supporter. So not only can you watch us live as we record our podcast episodes, you will be getting access to the raw, behind-the-scenes, unedited version of episodes before they get officially released. And Sarah, does that include our mistakes and screw-ups and our humiliating? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Every it does. Every single one of them. <laughs> Every single one of them, yes. So again, this is just an extra thank you to those who are going above and beyond. But whether you choose to become a monthly financial supporter or not, we still love you. We want to say we thank you for your support your encouragement, and your feedback. If you want to become a monthly financial supporter, please visit our website at www.steelwatching.com to sign up.